0: won't like me to say this, but summer's over. I mean, it's not, and she's right. It doesn't end till mid-September, technically. Um, But school has started, right? And um, most vacations are kind of done. We came back from a vacation that was great, which we really enjoyed. And judging by your pictures, it looks like you enjoyed your vacations, too. Um, Do you ever come to the end of a vacation and wish it was longer? Or am I the only one with that experience? Y- you know, a sign that you, that you enjoyed it uh, is that when you're done with vacation, you immediately begin dreaming of the next one. Like, oh, when can we do this again, right? Um, and I know that's not true for all vacations because I realize some vacations uh, are not fun and have not gone well. Um, but there is this sense in which it makes me think about in life how we long for something that is good and restful And joyful to continue on in life. And I think you know that experience too. There's something beautiful about that, right? We all want rest and joy and freedom. We want it not just in a vacation. We want it for life. In all parts of our life. You probably want it in different ways, right? You want freedom from what your past reminds you of. Or how your past catches up with you. Or you can't seem to shake it. You may want freedom from the pain and the way you try to numb that pain and chase it through a bottle or activities or screen time. You may want relief from fear and anxiety. Relief from panic attacks that come upon you because of those things. You want rest from the weariness of life, from being Just overwhelmed. Relief from the debt that you are in. Right? There are so many things in life around us and circumstances that can encroach in us that leave you feeling helpless in the moment and hopeless for the future. And they're not just tangible, physical things. Those things are also connected to our spiritual life. You see, because God created us, body and soul together, one affects the other. Those things matter. Remember, God's people, throughout the stories of the Bible, have experienced hard times as well. They've experienced poverty and imprisonment, sorrow and grief. And one of the questions, I suppose, is does the Bible offer us any hope or help? Any relief? Well, we're going to look in Isaiah 61 where he depicts the day that the Messiah comes to bring hope, to bring help, to bring healing, to bring restoration. So follow along with me, if you would, as we read Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 11. And uh, yeah, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, A planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that, that they are people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels." For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before the nations. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word, which is relevant and true. You tell us that the grass of the field and flowers of the field wither and perish, but the word of our God stands forever help us to learn from it today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I am not going to go all the way through that chapter we just read today and explain all of it. I'm going to key off a couple parts of it and we'll probably come back to it in the weeks to come. Some of you have gardens, I know. Um, Some of you enjoy it. Um, and uh, some of you have small gardens, some of you have big gardens. Gardens can be attacked, right, by worms, by diseases, um, by overgrown weeds, right? And so gardens then can flourish or they can be struggling. And life can be like a garden, right? Where sometimes you find yourself in this place where you have been planted and thinking, how do I survive when the weeds of life are encroaching and choking me out? When I feel like I'm being attacked. From outside? How do I grow when I feel strangled or undernourished? We're going to take three weeks to consider three key ways to grow where you are planted. Kind of take that from verse three, um, where in this uh, uh, text in Isaiah 61, where it talks about they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. The truth is God has planted each of us in a place. What does it look like to be faithful, to be planted in a place? How do we grow in that place? And so we're going to look at that over the next few weeks, um, and then we're going to transition into things that will still address some of that same issue, but a a longer series, just so you know what's coming, um, about being overwhelmed in life. It'll be called Overwhelmed, but Overcoming. Overcoming. But for now, for these three weeks, growing where you're planted. And in order to grow where you're planted, you have to, today what we want to look at is you've got to grow by rejoicing because you have been rescued by the Lord. I want to look at just those two things, you being rescued by the Lord. You can't grow unless you've been rescued by the Lord. And if you have, it'll lead you to rejoicing. Those, those two things right there. So first, growing where you're planted means you've been rescued by the Lord. Chapter 61 of Isaiah is written, speaking, and maybe you caught this as reading, about these future days where Israel is, is currently struggling, but these future days when one will come, the Messiah, who will set things right, who will restore justice, who will set free the captives, who will proclaim good news, right? Did you notice that right at the beginning, just in the in the first few verses? Notice the action and the presence of what What the Lord is doing, right? Proclaiming good news to the poor. Right? Good news. We all long for good news. Part of the good news is that your inheritance of heaven is secure, it is your hope for the future. And one of the things that poor always struggle with is simply survival. Will I have enough for the next day? Can I make it to the next day? And what the good news being proclaimed to the poor is, yes, you will be cared for, but more than that, your future is secure. It's not just about survival. You have been saved and redeemed. Your inheritance is sure. And then freedom and release for the captives in darkness, right? Things that seem to have trapped people like their past sins, present anxiety, panic, fear, Jesus says you can be free of that and not just one day in heaven when it's all free but but he will come and proclaim this and bring this about in the present reality that you can be free of it in order to do that right you have to you have to lean into Jesus you have to learn to trust Jesus that's not always easy think here's what's staring me in the face but if I trust Jesus what does that mean And trusting Jesus so often means turning away from the root causes that bring about such darkness, such shame, such fear, and clinging to Jesus. Instead, in that garden metaphor, what we do is we allow those weeds and those diseased things to come into us. And we think, I can't do without those, I need those, there's something about those I like. And Jesus is saying, no, you can receive life and the darkness can be overcome when you let go of those things. Whatever that might be, whether that's pornography or a bottle that that you continually find the bottom of. He can bring life to you. It's what the Messiah does. He comes and he does that. And we see that in the New Testament when Jesus goes about and he brings healing to people and restores them. Right? And not just from physical disease, but from their life. It goes on and he says, it's the, for the, he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is probably referring to the year of Jubilee, every 50 years in the Old Testament, when everything was canceled, forgiven, and reset. Right? So, and what that would mean would be like if somebody decided to, to cheat out their neighbor and they started moving the boundary stones, so that they got a little bit more property and like that... That went on from generation to generation, like a Hatfield and McCoy kind of thing. And uh, they kept stealing property and getting bigger so they could get more crop rows. Well, every 50 years, it went back. Like, nope, you've stolen. And, I mean, it, and it would have been restored had they been caught. But every 50 years, no matter what, they'd go back and everything would be reset. Debt's forgiven. The year of the Lord's favor when everything will be made right. But it also says, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's not a pleasant one to think about. In fact, it's probably worth noting, I'm not going to take you there and show you, but if you go to, I believe it's in Luke chapter 4, but if you turn there later today, you will see this account where Jesus goes to the synagogue, okay, where people are gathered to worship, in his hometown of Nazareth. He picks up a scroll from Isaiah. He opens this chapter that we just read, And he starts reading, and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. I am the one that has come to do this. But he does not say the day of vengeance. He stops after saying the year of the Lord's favor. Why does he do that? Real quickly, this is kind of an aside, but we think, and most scholars think, the reason he does that is because when Jesus came at the first time, he's coming to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Here's the good news. See how I'm going to restore all things? And when he comes again, because he promised he would return, he will come with a day of judgment and vengeance. When those who have not acknowledged him, who have not followed him, will be called to account, when justice will be executed. It is a day yet in the future. Today is a moment, a time when he's calling you to say, look how your life can be redeemed and respond to it. He goes on, right, and says um, that uh, in those verses, to bind up the brokenhearted. To bind up, like that means to heal, to strengthen, to bear up the brokenhearted. To comfort the grieving, he even says. Those who mourn. We've had a lot to grieve in the last few years. And even in the last few months, a lot of people who have lost loved ones. A lot of grieving. Notice what he says in um, like verses 4 and following after that. I'm not putting them on the screen, but he talks about uh, comfort the grieving and the crown of beauty instead of ashes. What is he saying? When people were in mourning in the ancient Near East and sorrow and grief would overcome them, they would put ashes on their head and on their face to show they were miserable. And what he's saying is when Christ comes, when Jesus comes and redeems you, he gives you a crown of beauty and says, no, take away the ashes because I'm giving you new life. Instead of mourning, putting on the oil of joy, right? Instead, they didn't use lots of makeup, but they would use olive oil to clean themselves up and their face. And if they weren't using that because they were in mourning and grief, he's saying, no, to use the oil of joy. And then he talks about a garment of praise instead of despair. So not torn clothes, but those of praise for God. He is the restorer of the way life ought to be. And we live in this tension now when, we're, when it's being restored and we see that in what God is doing and it's not yet fully restored like it will be in heaven. But we get to live in it now. What, what is being said here, what Isaiah is saying over 700 years before Jesus arrives, before the Messiah arrives, is that the Messiah will change things and because the messiah comes because Jesus comes he gives you hope because your past is forgiven and your future is secure but he also gives you help in the present here and now to help you grow it's a present spirit empowered reality of resurrection that's the power that Jesus has it's not just like a tool like well if i do a b and c life will get a little better for me no it's a, it's a spiritual reality That God really does work inside the lives of those who trust in him. And it's also important that we remember that he works to those who trust in him, right? Jesus himself said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Here's the garden metaphor again, right? It's not like saying, hey, you can just survive on your own. You've got to be connected to the vine where the root goes in the ground, where you get life and nutrients. You can't do this without Jesus. If you're going to grow where you're planted, it has to be because you are connected to Jesus. That's your hope of growth. For those of you who have not yet believed or in Christ as your Savior, then I invite you to do that. Like, it really is a difference maker. It really is. And I'll remind you of that day of vengeance. Isaiah talks about that in chapter 63. It's another thing you could read this afternoon. Go ahead and read 63 and see the day of vengeance that he talks about. Where he will execute justice and restore shalom on the earth. But those who know the Lord, who have been redeemed and restored, right, and rescued by God, know that the second key to growing where you're planted means... You rejoice in the Lord. And this we see in verse 7. We'll put this on the screen because this is one of the things I want to try to uh, strike at today. Did I put verse 7 in there? Yeah, there it is. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, right? When we feel shamed, like it's just overcoming, we can't deal with it. The double portion is saying, no, it's undone and beyond more than you can imagine. Instead of disgrace, you're going to rejoice in your inheritance, Everlasting joy. You see that? The joy that one should feel, the rejoicing because of it. That's what we're supposed to know and feel. As I was preparing this sermon on Friday, I was uh, listening to Spotify and um, I was kind of in this spot where I was just stuck. I was like, I had all these ideas and lots of notes and too many directions. Maybe it still feels that way to you. I don't know. but So I'm listening to Spotify, and I had Darius Rucker playing. And um, so I'm just listening, I'm writing, and all of a sudden, I mean, not all of a sudden, like instantly, but after several songs, that stopped, and I noticed different music was on. And I don't know what this says about me, or what Spotify thinks of me, or, or, or my, um, my beautiful, wonderful, diverse selection of music, but it jumped to Christmas music. And, and the first Christmas song that came up was, You're the Grinch. And I'm like, what? But the Grinch is the one who steals everyone's joy at Christmas, right? And the song that comes after the Grinch is, Oh, come let us adore him. In awe, with rejoicing and wonder, and I'm like, Yeah. That's what it's supposed to be like. Life feels like the Grinch is trying to steal everything from us. And Christ is saying, no, there's joy in it. And you need to know that and realize that. Spring run, family of God, we need to grow where we are planted. And a big part of that is rejoicing, gathering together for worship. That, of course, means we have to gather together. We've got to show up, What you guys are doing. That's great. And, and if you're watching online, I encourage you to come in person. It's very different. And, and, um, and it's important to be here. And it's not important for you to be here for me so that I feel good. Though it does, and that's a danger, right? That's just a dangerous reality that preachers can try to feel good based on who's there or who's not. I'm not you need to be here for you. For your joy, for your rejoicing, and for the people that are with you. Because as we're together, it edifies one another. We're saying, yes, we're coming together to remember God's goodness to us and to rejoice in that. But it's it's more than that. To gather and to enjoy worship. What does it look like to be joyful in worship? Well, I've preached whole sermon series on this before, so this is just a few things. Um, So it's not exhaustive. But let me just talk about this in three ways. And it's three ways that I want to talk about it because I think there's, this might be unfair, but I think there's kind of three different ways people are geared in life individually, personality-wise. There's people who are thinkers. They're in their head a lot. There's people who are feelers. They're very emotive. And there's people who are doers. They're like, just get her done, right? And And so if I take those three structures and say, what does it look like to enjoy worship, I say it actually involves all three of those. Because God made you with brains to think, with emotions to feel, and with a will to do things. So intellectually, for the thinker, what we think about is important. Because there's one true God, and we don't get to invent or create that God. That God reveals himself to us, which he has done supremely in Jesus Christ, his son, and through his scriptures. And so we have to know him, not as we imagine him to be, or as we want him to be, or I think God doesn't care if I do this or that. We need to see what God says. What's right and what's true. And we need to go by that. It has to engage our minds. And you have to know the scriptures to know who God is. That means you've got to read them. Maybe you should go look at Luke 4 this afternoon, Jesus and Nazareth, and read Isaiah 63, The Day of Vengeance. Reread Isaiah 61. But there's also a warning in this too. To the one who is the intellectual, the thinker, the one who's like, oh, I'll just, I can, I can think about this and I'll put everything nice and neat in the boxes that I want it and I'll get it just, just right the way I need it. I got good doctrine. The one who is concerned with that needs to hear a word of caution. Not because it's bad, but because there's others who have gone before you in that same way, and yet Jesus did not talk too kindly. Right? The Pharisees, the, the ethical and moralistic lawyers of the day who knew the Bible backwards and forwards, they could quote it and say it, they learned it. They knew it. They would say, no, that's not right. This is right. They would make other rules to guard it and say, this is what's the, what the way is. But they were wrong. They could be right about certain things and give Jesus a right answer and be dead spiritually. Not having the power of Jesus and his resurrection at work in them. So yes, when we come to worship, we come with our brains intellectually. Does it make sense? Are we understanding what God has said? Is it true? yes and we stand on it, but that's not all that it is, right? And so it has to be put into practice, right? For those who are practically the doers, the pragmatists, the moralists, to get it done, do the right thing. That's important too. Faith and truth must go outward and be lived out, It's got to be put in action. Isaiah chapter 1, in fact, rails against those who have a liturgy for worship, but their faith doesn't touch their life. It talks about their fake worship. And God actually says, stop! Stop your meaningless worship! Because you don't live it! Stop bringing before me these senseless offerings! Because faith has to impact life. And the danger, I suppose, too, in the one who is the doer is to think, um, well, I just got to get it done and and then I'll just run over people to get it done. No, people are important. People are ministry. People is is what we do in the church. We love one another, care for one another. And the other thing is when you're a a doer, you can feel like either you or everybody else is a hypocrite because uh, they talk a good thing, but are they really doing enough? And we have to be careful that we don't that we don't always put that on somebody else. Uh, you gotta do more, you gotta do more. Well, our faith does have to be put into action. But if the mantra we're always hearing is you never do enough, you're not good enough, where's the reality that Jesus comes and says, I have died for you and forgiven your sins, and you are mine? You're good enough because I'm enough. And then there's the the feeler, the uh, the emotional aspect of worship, right? I suppose the danger here is that um, feelers um, can tend to look for inspiration and look for the motivation for things and be drawn to all kinds of ways to see that. Um, maybe that means that when you are on social media, you see the the memes on Instagram and you like those and you're like, oh this is so good, this inspires me, and you're like, share, 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 and it's all over the place, and, and some of those are good, but some of them can quickly lead to false teaching. Like, you got to think about what's in it, right? Is it right or not? Does it just make me feel good, or is it true? So we can engage in false worship by not worshiping the true nature of God as he's revealed himself, as He is instructed, right? And, and feelings come from all kinds of places. Bad tacos, hot flashes, fourth cup of coffee, right? Like, we're just feeling people. But there is a real part of our feelings, our emotions deep that that we need to listen to because they are windows that open our soul to what we're experiencing so that God can say, yes, I meet you in this place. I went to the Darius Rucker concert last night. It was fun. It was exciting. Um, It was even emotionally moving. Um, People jumping up and down, shouting, hands up, singing along. I mean, it was awesome. But it wasn't church, and Darius isn't God. Newsflash, I know. Um, Right? It's different. It's not the same as church and worship. But honestly, our church is not overrun with emotional expression. Um, Sometimes I wonder if we're awake or slumbering. Um, Is it real? Like, does God really move me? Now, that does not mean that you have to act like you're at Darius Rucker concert. That's not what I'm saying necessarily, right? I I don't want you to misunderstand in that. And I realize everybody's different. Like, right, if you're the thinker and just rational person or doer, like, just kind of steady a, you may not be the person who at the concert is jumping all over the place and everything everybody's different so i'm not telling you you have to be one way or the other what i want to ask you though is this here's the question is is your soul numb or is your heart moved to worship god because jesus loves you is your heart moved by that or numb and asleep to it And if you're awakened by that, if you have life, then it responds in your body some way. And that might mean you just feel kind of like your heartbeat intensify. It might mean that you want to raise your hands or or whatever, right? It can be expressed in different ways, but the key is, does God touch your heart? See, lots of people's hearts get touched at concerts. Does it touch your heart here when we gather for worship? Ask him to. I need to wrap up here. Let me leave you with two images that have deep biblical meaning in their last two verses of this passage, verses 10 and 11. We can put those on the screen uh, for people to see. It says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Bride, bridegroom, wedding, one image. Second one in verse 11. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. Garden and growth. We're talking about growing where you're planted. And here's this image of a garden again. It's frequent throughout the scriptures in many places. In Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, right? But it goes on, it says he's like a tree planted by streams of water where he can get the nutrients and the the nourishment. I think the language of garden here is more than the simple idea of the garden that grows where it's planted, even though it is clearly that. It's saying it's the sovereign Lord who will plant the garden and cause it to grow. I think it's probably echoing to a bigger garden. I think it's echoing voices of Eden. Images of the Garden of Eden saying, Remember when life was like it was created to be? Without pain, sin, sorrow, suffering, war, tragedy, tears? The Lord is planting a garden. And the consummation of it will come one day in heaven when all things will be made right and shalom will be restored. It's the restoration and consummation of all things. And the Lord is making this garden to rise up for his righteousness and as a display of his splendor. And then the wedding is the other one. Another frequent image through Scripture where Christ is the groom coming for his adorned bride. Jesus talks about that in multiple times in the Gospels. The covenant with the people of God was made and sealed like a wedding at Mount Sinai with the same kind of structure that they would do for weddings with, here's the stipulations of the wedding and now we're joined together. He uses the wedding language throughout the prophets when his people have been unfaithful and is he going to divorce them or not or go rescue them and reclaim them because they are wed together. And he's saying the bride should be ready because the groom is coming. This afternoon, I get to do a wedding. Uh, Bailey Coppage is getting married to Catherine Randall. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Weddings are so fun. One of my favorite parts about weddings is right at the beginning, right after everybody's come in, the bride's at the back, the door's open. And everybody stands and turns to look. And there she is, radiant. in all her glory to come down the aisle. And one of my favorite things to do is to look at the face of the groom. To see his eyes as he looks to his bride. And there's always different reactions. Sometimes it's tears, sometimes it's smiles, sometimes it's like... Deep breath, like, but the groom is like, wow, it's happening. I often wonder what Jesus' face will be like when he comes for his bride, for you and me. And all we know is the language that scripture gives us and how joyful that is. That he will be full of delight because he's coming for the one that he's rescued, the one that he's redeemed, The one that he's restored, fought for, died for, rose from the dead for, and says, you're mine, and I'm here. Today's the day of the wedding. That, my friends, should cause us to have great rejoicing. And I invite you to be ready for that day. Martin Luther, a theologian from one of the great reformers, says that We should live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back tomorrow. So we don't know. Are you ready for the groom? It'll help you grow where you're planted. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be people who are yours because you have made us yours, but people who being yours are ready, who are rejoicing, Lord, help us to worship because in doing so it lifts our eyes from the weeds and the diseases and helps us to see you. That we would rejoice fully in what you have done for us in your greatness, in your goodness, in your kindness. Yes, Jesus, make us people of joy. And that will look differently for each one of us, but make our hearts beat for you. Help us to sing for your joy. To walk. To walk with steps because of your joy. Help us to live in such a way that we love others, that we smile, that we laugh because you have given us joy. We ask all this in your name. Amen.